0: As I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 today. I'm Pastor Ted. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And as they're still passing out Bibles, I'm just going to jump right in. Let me let me set up our text today. I'll, I'll do it this way. Um, Stories told of a man who had a pet snake that he named Slinky, and uh, Slinky was a disgusting specimen of a snake. Just this big old monstrous, monstrous, you know, scary snake. And, uh, and Slinky's owner, uh, well, you know, a grown man, his sister, every time she'd come to visit him, hated the snake, just terrified uh, of this stupid snake. And uh, what really creeped her out about the snake was that it ate live mice. She couldn't stand that. She just thought it was, it was so horrible, you know, and the snake would just seem to be laying there not doing anything and the mouse would be crawling all over this snake but he'd slowly just sort of, you know, imperceptibly just sort of move his coils there. Such a picture of Satan, right? And the, the mouse would be sitting there and all of a sudden his eyes would get real big when the snake would constrict on it and, uh, and so she just freaked out about this. Goose couldn't stand it, creeped her out. Well, one day the guy was out of town and he'd asked a buddy of his to feed the snake for him. And his friend sort of flaked out on him at the last minute. And so he calls his sister. And he says, listen, you've got, you've got I'm going to ask you the biggest favor of my life, but you've got to feed Slinky. And she's like, Slinky's going to die because I'm not going to feed that stupid snake. <laughs> He's like, please, sis, come on, please. She's like, all right, fine. What do I got to do to feed your dumb snake? He goes, well, you've got to go down to the pet store and you've got to, you've got to buy the mice. She's like, you've gotta be kidding me. And so she goes down to the pet store, and then later she's retelling the story, and she says the worst part wasn't picking out the poor specimens, you know. She said the, the worst part wasn't even when the, the pet store that you know, the guy working at the pet store asked her if she wanted to buy vitamins with the mice to keep them healthy. She said the worst part was taking these poor mice home in a box that said, thanks for giving me a home. (laughs) Said she felt terrible. Now, I tell you that story by way of introduction, because here's the deal. Home is not supposed to be a place where you're fed to a snake, right? And that goes for the church. And what we're going to see in our text today, Jesus is going to encounter this woman who metaphorically is being fed to a snake. She is coming to God's house and she is in torment and she is in desperate need of Jesus. She's come to the house of God to worship the Lord and she's seeking compassion because as we're going to see, this is a woman who has been afflicted with a physical ailment for 18 years. It literally has her bent over, unable to straighten up, just a very uncomfortable devastating physical ailment that she's dealing with, and she's come to the house of the Lord to worship Him, but rather than finding compassionate care and the feeding of her soul by the religious leaders, she's met instead by indignant legalists who are more concerned about their regulations than they are with her release from her condition. And so the focus of our study really today is going to be what should the church look like? What should it look like when we gather together? What should this place be? What, what, what kind of a spirit should we operate in? This is kind of the, the applicable lesson for us today. So we're going to look at an, an infirmed woman. We're going to look at an, an indignant leader, and we are going to look at an infected church. Let's begin with an infirmed woman. Luke chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 10 where we left off. It says, Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and he said to her, Woman, you are loosed. From your infirmity, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Jesus here, he's on his way to Jerusalem. We've seen this is the last month of his ministry. When we get to uh, verse thirty-three here of this chapter, it's going to show us there that he's still about three days' journey from Jerusalem at this point. And as was Jesus' custom, on the Sabbath day, he would teach in the local synagogue, wherever he happened to be. And so that's the occasion here. Um, he's teaching on the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, the Jews observed uh, the Sabbath on a Saturday. Um, and uh, the fourth commandment makes it clear when we're talking about the Ten Commandments here. The fourth commandment is that we remember the Sabbath day and that we keep it holy. Holy. The basic idea of a Sabbath day is a day of rest where we worship God. Now the early church, the first century church, rather than worshiping God on Saturday, as was the Jewish custom, the Sabbath day on Saturday, they worshiped God on Sunday. And the reason they did this is because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, and so in the first century, we as a church, we began meeting on Sundays, and Sunday became our Sabbath day's rest. But whichever day you choose to set aside to worship God, Jesus said in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 2, that God designed the Sabbath for our well-being. Here's what Jesus said, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he said, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. That's important because as we're going to see, the religious leaders, they started you know, this fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, they just tripped out on that and they started to make all kinds of rules and regulations that they would burden the people down with and it got away from being what was a day of rest and intended by God as a day of rest. It became this day of burden where it would actually have a lot of rules and regulations to follow, and so the Sabbath was anything but a day of rest. And... The idea here, God intends for us to take a day, a day for rest, for reflection, and for release. It's just a day where we come to the Lord, and what this is supposed to be is to where we we lay all of our burdens down at His feet. We gather together, we encourage one another, we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The church is supposed to be a place where I can cast all my cares upon the Lord, knowing that He cares for me. Peter said that, 1 Peter chapter 5. That we're to cast our cares upon God knowing that he cares for us. And so, so this, is, this is the idea where, man, what is it about getting together? It's where we hit the pause button and we just trust God with all of our cares. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. So that's the backdrop here. It's the Sabbath day. It's supposed to be the time where people lay, cast all their cares upon the Lord and lay their burdens down. And here you've got this woman. She is weighed down by demonic affliction. And she's coming to God's house on the Sabbath. And she's come to cast her cares upon the Lord and to seek His deliverance, just as she's been doing for 18 years. And let me just say this. Maybe today you're in a similar place. Maybe you are struggling with a physical ailment that has you burdened down that you want desperately to be released from. Or maybe it's an emotional component, just dealing with something that you need to be released from. I've been wounded, I've been hurt, I've been betrayed. Uh, Whatever it is, emotionally, you come to the house of God today and you're saying, God, deliver me, set me free, take this from me. Uh, Maybe it's some relational issue that's going on, some sort of besetting thing that that is tormenting you. It may be an addiction that you're dealing with today. Something that you need to be delivered from. Whatever it is, like this woman, maybe you've come here today and you're weighed down and you want to seek the Lord. And I'll just tell you this, that at the end of the service today, just as we did at the end of uh, the 9 a.m. service, we're going to have the pastors and the elders up front and we want to be able to pray for you today. We want to ask the Lord to heal you today, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever it is. We're going to exercise faith today, and we want to seek to do that. Well, here's this woman, and she's in this place as well. And if you share this, this torment with her, and in, in, you know, maybe you know, it's a physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, I want you to notice two things about this gal, this gal, two things to notice about this woman. Number one, she had a spirit of infirmity, the Bible says. What does that mean? Well, in other words, what it means is this woman's physical condition was the result Of demonic attack. For this gal in particular in our story, she is being attacked demonically and has been for 18 years. Now, if you doubt that, just jump down to verse 16. Jesus makes it clear. What does he say there? He's asking a question, and we'll pick this up in context in a minute. But in verse 16, he's saying basically, shouldn't this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, here it is, whom Satan has bound? Think of it, he says, for 18 years. So Jesus makes it clear, Satan has bound her. This is a demonic attack against this woman. Now, that's not to say that all physical affliction, that all illnesses, that all things that we deal with are are necessarily demonic. Certainly, it is demonic in the sense that we live in a fallen world because Satan has inserted himself into this world and he tempted, you know, our, our parents, as it were, Adam and Eve, to sin. And so sin entered the world and because sin entered the world, sickness and death has entered the world. So from that perspective, yes, because of the decaying nature of sin, all sickness, all illness can trace its root back to the, the original demonic influence of Satan. But having said that, not all illness is the work of an active demonic spirit. Uh, David Guzik, in his commentary, he says this. He says, we are foolish to think that spiritual issues uh, cause all physical problems. But he quickly adds this. He says, we are also foolish to think spiritual issues can never cause physical problems. Certainly, demonic issues, spiritual issues, can cause physical problems. And that's what this woman is dealing with here. Now, sometimes sickness is just because we live in a fallen world. Uh, Other times, sickness can be, the Bible says, because of our sinful behavior. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, by the way, Paul's talking there about partaking of communion, something we do every Sunday. The bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And we're exhorted as believers to partake of communion often. And Paul, speaking to believers, he told them in 1 Corinthians 11 that some believers we are yeah in, if you're in Christ the Bible says if anyone's in Christ he's a new creation old things pass away behold all things become new um, but Paul also talked about how we even as a new creation in Christ we still have the old nature that influences us and basically whichever, whichever nature you feed you got two natures within you. you got the you got the new man you got the old man and whichever one you feed that's the one that sort of governs your behavior. And so what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, is he says, you know, hey look, some of y'all, when you're partaking of communion, you're doing so, and certainly, you know, the, the implication is you're saved, but your conduct isn't always God-glorifying. And basically what Paul says there, and you can read it for yourselves, I really don't have time to get, it, get a lot into it, but basically what he says is that some people, because of their behavior, God just allows them to become sick and to die, and just takes them home. It's like, it's like the Lord just look, you, looks at your disobedient life and your sinful life, and at some point, He just allows you to become sick and to die. It's basically His way of saying, everybody out of the pool, you know? You're going to live like that? I'm just going to take you home. Because you, you're being a bad witness to me and, and, and all. And so the Bible actually says that sometimes we have sickness because of our sinful behavior things that we engage in that aren't God-glorifying. But in this woman's case, the text makes it very clear that the sickness has a demonic component to it, which raises the question, can Christians be possessed by by a demon? And, And some will use this section of Scripture in Luke chapter 13 to make the case that Christians can be possessed by a demon because Jesus makes it clear that this 18 years of, of illness is the direct result of a demonic presence in this woman's life. The short answer is no, Christians cannot be possessed uh, by, by a demon. The Bible says greater is he that is in you than he that is in uh, the world. Um, but for this woman, listen, this is, this is a gal who's afflicted with this, as godly as she may have been, being faithful to come to the temple regularly, she was not born again by the Spirit of God. Not at this point. Why? Well, because the work of Jesus had not yet been accomplished on the cross. Right? And so, see, the reason that that Christians, if you've professed faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we're all sinners by nature and by choice, and that and that if we believe... In Jesus Christ, He is the Son of God. If we confess with our mouth that God has raised Him from the dead, that we'll be saved, right? And so if you're born again by the Spirit of God, the reason that you then cannot be demon-possessed after that point isn't because you're good, it's because you're a new creature in Christ, that you're protected from demonic possession. But having said that, we can be subject to demonic oppression. And this seems to be the example here. Notice with this woman, first of all, Jesus never casts out a demon in this story. Uh, Secondly, no demon ever speaks in this story. Frequently in the New Testament, if Jesus is casting a demon out of somebody, then you'll have an example of the demon speaking or whatever. And as well, Jesus lays hands on this woman And you won't find another example in the New Testament where when he was casting a demon out, where he actually laid hands on, he just would speak and rebuke the demon in those instances. And so all of these are clues to tell us this gal isn't isn't possessed by a demon, but she is oppressed by a demon. And Jesus, hey, he wants to lay hands on her and he wants to heal her. And, And here's what I throw out here. Maybe today Jesus wants to lay hands on you. Maybe today Jesus wants to heal you. Maybe today you're in a situation where, hey, you just need to call upon the elders of the church. That's what James says, James 5, 14, 15. I'll put it on the screen for you. It asks the question, is anyone, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith. Will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Him. And so, our elders, pastors, we 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 want to lay hands on you today in obedience to the scriptures. We want to pray. Who knows what God wants to do? You know, we're we're gonna, we're going to believe boldly today that that God wants to to do a healing work. Now, He's sovereign, uh, and and God, you know, that sometimes He chooses. To, to allow your affliction to persist, uh, just as he did with this woman. He allowed it for 18 years. She going faithfully, we can only assume, to the, to the synagogue regularly seeking the Lord, and he allowed it to progress 18 years. Listen, that's according to his sovereign will. The Bible says that God works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, how does he use it in this woman's life? Well, that brings up my second observation of this woman that I want you to take note of. Second thing to observe is that she continued to faithfully worship God. 18 years afflicted, continuing to faithfully worship God. Frankly, many of us would not be able to do the same thing. I mean, I get testy when it's, you know, God, it's been 18 minutes that I'm dealing with this, you know, kind of thing. And she's 18 years, you know, and sometimes we're like, oh, God, you're not moving fast enough. No, God sovereignly knows what he's doing. Maybe today you've experienced that, or may, maybe today, you know, you, you, you're, you're ongoingly experiencing that. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said this, he said, Let us not become weary in doing good, for in due season, the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. James says this, James 1, verses 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience, he says, have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, so so it's twofold, and we hold it in the same open hand. We say, hey, God can heal you today. And he exhorts us to boldly ask him for this, to come and ask the elders to anoint you with oil in the prayer of faith, promising to make you well. And at the same time, in the same open hand, God's answer might be, not today. And either way, he's God. It's a sovereign work on his part. It's been said that the sovereignty of God is is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. When he's providentially working in your life, his hand is in the glove of your life. And in, with his hand in the glove of your life, it may be today that God wants to set you free and do a great work. And it may be today that God says, not yet. And you go, well, how does that work? Well, let's look at how it worked in the life of this woman. What happened? 18 years <laughs> coming, saying, God saved me. God deliver me, God heal me, and 18 years the answer has been known. And so, you know, rocking of a faith and and a what on earth are you doing? Well, what what do we see that God did do through that? Yes, he heals her at the 18-year mark, and in so doing, what happens? Number one, God's glorified. We see it in the text. This woman coming, Jesus seeing Him calling her to himself, laying his hands upon her and healing her, what's the end result? Everybody just glorifies God. Like, wow, this is amazing. What else is the result? Hey, another result is that this gives an opportunity for everybody who's there to go, whoa, (laughs) Jesus is the real deal, right? It's a testament to who Jesus is and to the work he wants to do. How's he doing that? Through this woman's affliction. See, so, so she is being used by God to reveal his son to the world. Remember, he's a month away from going to the cross. And we don't know, but man, there are, there are those there that are experiencing this who may well today be in heaven. Why? Because God used this woman's horrible affliction and deliverance ultimately from that to pr- open their eyes to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God. And so God uses that for his glory. Also, God uses that to bring hope to the generations who have followed. I mean, 2,000 years of, of Christians living on this earth since this story told and put into the Bible. And now there are those that go through afflictions and they look to this woman as an example of, hey, she, to- she was tormented 18 years, but Jesus delivered, and there's hope yet for me. As well, it gives Jesus the opportunity, as we're going to see now as we continue in the text, Jesus uses this woman's affliction as an opportunity to expose and to rebuke the religious leaders that are part of her synagogue that are so not filled with the love of God. And so Jesus is using her affliction to cast light on a great injustice. So we've looked at an infirmed woman. Secondly, now we look at an indignant leader. Verse 14 as we continue. Well, let's pick it up in context in verse 13. And he laid hands, his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. 18 years. Holy moly, thank you, Jesus. Like, wow, this is amazing. God, you are so good, but... Verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath... And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. What a knucklehead. You know, one of the guys, and I'll read the quote to you in a minute, but basically one of the commentators says, you know, the demon that that Jesus uh, dealt with who was afflicting this poor woman obviously entered this, this clown's heart, you know. And the Lord answered him, verse 15, he said, You hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Hey, you you guys own an, an, an ox or a donkey on the Sabbath day. It doesn't prevent you from untying them to go get a drink. Notice the correlation there. He's talking about loosing something that's tied up, something that's bound up. This woman is bound up by Satan. And he's like, you guys are hypocrites. You do that for your ox or your donkey. He said, so ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. What's the setting here? Why is this guy stuck on stupid? The problem with this guy, see, the religious leaders, as they did with so many of God's commandments in his law, they stuck a bunch of additional rules and regulations upon the people. So, so where God gives, you know, ten commandments, which really just boil down to two commandments, love God and love others they add, you know, 600 and some odd rules and regulations that they created themselves, these man-made rules and regulations, and they held up these man-made rules and regulations as the Word of God, which it wasn't. It was the stupid, boneheaded commandments of men that they had just made religion this complicated, works-oriented kind of thing. Let me give you for instance. They, they filled Judaism with all of these rituals, you know, around the Sabbath observances. And remember, again, Sabbath is all about, you know, it's made for man. It was time for rest and being restored and being able to cast your cares upon the Lord. And they added all of these rules. They taught, for instance, on the Sabbath that you couldn't carry anything in your hands um, or that would be working. But you could carry something with the back of your hand, right? Or they also taught that you could carry something with your foot or that you could carry something with your elbow or you could carry something inside your ear or you could carry something inside your hair or in the hem of your shirt, you could carry something um, or in your shoe or in your sandal. These things they, they said you could, you could carry. So crazy rules, right? They also taught that on the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot. So like if you were thirsty and wanted to get some water from a well, you couldn't tie a rope around a bucket to get it. But they had an exception. If you're a woman, you could tie a knot in your girdle. So so what they could theoretically do is get your wife to tie her girdle onto a bucket if you wanted to get some water out of the well. Like crazy kind of rule. And I'm not making this stuff up. It's just crazy. Here's another example of how ridiculous they were. They taught that if you were going to spit on the Sabbath day, you had to spit on a rock. You couldn't spit in the dirt. Why? Because if you spat in the dirt, it might hit the dirt and roll into a little mud ball, and that would make a furrow, which technically would be working. Right? No, No joke here. So they actually had established 39 categories of actions that were forbidden on the Sabbath. Just just on the Sabbath alone. So in their religious fanaticism, they totally missed love and compassion. That's the idea. I like what Charles Spurgeon said because he's painting a picture. He says this, For 18 years, this woman had not gazed upon the sun. For 18 years, no star of night had gladdened her eye. Her face was drawn downward toward the dust and all the light of her life was dim. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave and I do not doubt she often felt that it would have been a gladness to have found one. What a a great way of putting it. Here's this woman, she's afflicted and now Jesus has healed her and it's a cause for great celebration and all this knucklehead can do is say you did this on the Sabbath and that's wrong, that's messed up. Again, Adam Clark, it would seem as if the demon who had left the woman's body had gone into his heart. That's what's going down here. So Jesus rebukes the man. Basically, he goes, look, you're a hypocrite. Because you don't think anything about untying your animals if they need a drink on the Sabbath. And so he says, so ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And it's interesting when he says, ought not this woman, Jesus isn't saying, what do you suppose? You think it's a good idea? You know, we untie the ox. Don't you think it's about time maybe we untie, you know, the gal? That's not the context. It kind of sounds like that. Shouldn't this happen? Like, what do you think? Maybe yes, maybe no. No, the way that this is, this is formed in the Greek, it's in the strong imperative. He's saying, look, she must be loosed. This has to happen. It has to go down. If you can help an animal on the Sabbath, you can help this woman on the Sabbath. It's not about your stupid rules. But the problem is, the religious leaders, they can't see that. And so, what, what do we do? We go, okay, this is contextually what's going on. This happened 2,000 years ago. How do we apply this today? Here in church. Here, what kind of church are we going to have? What kind of people are we going to be to one another? How do we make the application here? Here's how we make the application here. It's not about systems and structures and rules and all of that stuff. It's just about love and compassion. It's what it is. Listen, here's here's what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. He's asked this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And here's his answer. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself... On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, your whole Bible summed up, two commands, love God, love others. It comes down to are we going to be all about legalistic conformity or are we going to be about loving compassion? There's a story in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 20, and, and there's these two blind guys at the side of the road. They hear Jesus is coming by and they're screaming out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, have mercy on us. Everybody's trying to shut them up. They're like, hey, look, this, this is how we do things here. You guys are totally out of order, and it's just you're making a fool of yourself. And it's, you know, we're, we're kind of all about, you know, <laughs> don't, don't bother him, sort of, sort of deal. So it's, it's unbecoming how, how you're behaving. They're just like, Jesus, heal me, kind of thing. And, and Jesus sees him, has compassion on him, heals him. And so, so this is the thing. It's not about this legalistic conformity. When we get together as a body of believers, I I had a guy invited me over to his house years ago, and um, he'd lost his daughter tragically, Sids. She had died in her crib, Uh, and uh, eleven months old. And so this guy, he's a little he's a little rough around the edges. You know, I go over to his house for dinner. He offers me a beer that's the size of a you know, it's just a huge beer. It's like you want a beer? And I'm like, no, man, I don't drink. All right, I'll just have it then. And he's just, you know, that's, that, that's him. Now, did I get all like, hey, that's not, oh, no, we're not doing that. I'm not, I, no, the guy's, he just needs Jesus. What do I do? I just love the guy. I'm just there to care for the guy. I would, you know, let's, let's get him in the boat. Let's let Jesus, you know, catch this guy, hook this guy. Jesus will gut him like a fish after he gets him in the boat. You know, he'll clean him up. He'll do the work by his Holy Spirit. I don't have to put a bunch of rules and regulations on him. Like it's hard enough for Christians to behave like Christians. I can't expect a non-Christian to act like Christ. I can't say, oh, I'm going to put all these rules and regulations on you and have you conform to what a Christian should look like. No, I'm going to just love you, and I'm just going to share the gospel with you, and I'll let Jesus catch you and clean you. Right, that's the attitude. That's the, that's the kind of place we gotta be. Here, somebody shows up and we go, "Oh, we don't dress that way here at Reliance Church. What way? You know? Oh, well, we just we just don't do. I mean, you gotta sh- you know show up in a certain attire. If you're gonna love Jesus, you gotta. No, we're not gonna be like that. We're gonna be like, cool. You got clothes on. Come on in. You know. <laughs> right. Let's just let's just worship Jesus. Right. Here's what Jude says, Jude uh, chapter 1, only chapter, verse 21 through 23. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Here's the idea. We love like Jesus loved, we show mercy, we show compassion, and we don't compromise. That's the attitude. That's the kind of people we want to be, right? Just just love people. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith says in his commentary at this point. He says, it's tragic when religion becomes a hindrance to man's coming to God, rather than an assistance to man's coming to God. But that's the capacity of man. He is able to take a simple thing and make it extremely complex by setting up his own hierarchy in it and his systems of authority and power. So that's what's going on here. Contextually, in, in, in 2,000 years ago, Jesus is dealing with all these religious leaders, all about their rules, all about their regulations. We see how we can do that today. And so we've got this infirmed woman. We've got this indignant leader And now Jesus warns about an infected church. Look there, starting in verse 18, and I'll be quick on this point. He says, verse 18, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and it became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. What on earth do you mean by those two parables, right? What, What is Jesus saying? Well, some people read these two parables and what they see in them is a beautiful picture of the growth of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. What, what they see is, hey, the church is going to grow so large that there's going to be many who can find a branch where they can hang out and, and dwell, and they'll find a place to nest there in this, this large, expansive church. Uh, the gospel is going to spread like leaven into all the world. And so they see it that way. Now, here's the problem with interpreting these two parables that way. It's a hermeneutical principle known as expositional constancy. You're like, what does that mean? Okay? Expositional constancy means this. It means that when the Bible uses examples in parables, that the examples remain the same in all of the parables. All right? And so so that that is true true and that's the case. So when birds are used in parables, and that's the emphasis, parables, okay. I'll expand on that in a minute. When birds are used in parables, they're never used in a good sense. They're always used in an evil sense, okay? Birds are used in a good sense in other areas in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is pictured as a dove descending from heaven as, as one of many examples. I'm not talking about all the examples in scriptures. I'm talking about parables, these, these stories that have a heavenly meaning, okay? I'll give you an example. Uh, Birds used in an evil sense. Mark chapter 4, Jesus told the parable of the soils. And basically, man goes out to to scatter the seed. We saw that in Luke's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, he adds a little explanation. He says, the man goes out to scatter the seed. And there's different... Types of, of soil that the seed falls on, and Jesus is equating the soil that it falls on with the condition of, the, of your heart and your willingness and readiness to receive the Word of God. And He says, Some of the, the, the seed fell on stony ground, on rocky ground, and, uh, and He said, The birds came and devoured it. And then in His explanation of the parable, He said that the birds, in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4, He says, The birds are a picture of Satan who comes and snatches the word away. Same thing with leaven. Leaven, in, the, in parable form, is always used in, in a bad sense. It's not used in a good sense. We just went through this in Luke chapter 12. Jesus warned against the, the leaven of the Pharisees, which he said is hypocrisy. Right? What's leaven? It's yeast. And what does it do to the dough? It rots it you know, causes it to rise, and that rising is the rotting internally of the dough, gas bubbles being released, rising of the dough, we bake it, we cut it, we toast it, we put the butter in those little nooks and crannies, love the sweet tangy taste, but it's really a picture of scent, right? And the problem here is that Jesus, you know, people go, oh, wow, this, he's talking about the kingdom of God. How can we be talking about the spread of, of sin in the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus' example, he uses in verse 21, he says, it's, it's like he, leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. That's very significant, this idea of three measures of meal. See, because in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord visited Abraham, What did he do? Well, among other things, he ordered Sarah to prepare bread for him, okay? And she took these three measures of meal, and she made bread for them. And at that point, bread became symbolic of fellowship with God because this this appearance of this angel to Abraham was actually God. And so the baking of the bread became synonymous of this symbolic of fellowship with God. And it was then incorporated into the Jews' worship service. And so what happened is they would make a burnt offering, sacrifice, a symbol of being consecrated of a life to God, right? And they would follow it with a bread offering. And what was that bread offering made of? It was made of three measures of meal. And so then they would offer this as a sacrifice, which which symbolized offering my works to God, bringing me into fellowship with Him. And here's the point they were warned severely, don't use leaven in those three measures. Don't use leaven. Why? Symbol of sin, symbol of rottenness. That doesn't have any part with our fellowship with God. So leaven inserted into these three measures here in verse 21 is an evil thing. So this hermeneutical principle of expositional consistency tells us that these are examples of sin and wickedness. As well, their placement in the gospel of Luke, right where they are, tells us that this is a picture of of sin and wickedness. Why? Because contextually, it follows this this warning against sin and wickedness, and and it's going to be followed by this exhortation to take the narrow road, not go on this wide road. And so we put all that together, and what do we see here? We see that that Jesus is saying... That as the church progresses through the years, there's going to be satanic attack within the church and there's going to be rotten influences within the church as well. This is what Jesus is warning about with these, two, with these two examples. Certainly we see that through the ages. How, how, yes, the kingdom is, the word of God is spread. Yes, churches have grown. Yes, Christianity is spread across the world. But in the process, there have been very much infiltration of, within the church, uh, uh, an, an evilness and, and uh, infiltration of Satan. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon said this. He said, I believe that one reason why the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. So what do we do with this today? I want to bring it to application and bring this to a close right now. Okay, what do we do with this today? I want, I want to ask you several questions and, and actually maybe even you take the time to write these down. I don't have them up on the screen. So, so, uh, so let me just throw this out. I want you to ask yourself, number one, are you loving people the way Jesus loves them? Because that's, that's, that's an easy takeaway. That's a big E on the eye chart kind of takeaway. This Pharisee right here, he just, he just has no love, no compassion, no care. Jesus has plenty of love, plenty of compassion, plenty of care. How, how, what are you? Are you the Pharisee or are you Jesus? You know, how, how loving and compassionate are you being for people? Second question. Are you living in the religious bubble of hypocrisy? Are, are you living in a religious bubble of hypocrisy? You know, the, these guys, hypocrites. They take better care of their ox than they do of this poor woman. Another question. Um... Just here for us as a body, okay? Reliance Church, it's not an organization. It's us. We're Reliance Church, okay? And, and so as a church, how are we taking care of people here? Are they welcomed in or are they, hey, you better toe the line if you, if you want to, you know, be here? And so, so how are we treating people? How about worldly influences, the, the, just the world seeping in? If, ask yourself this question. If Christianity were, were declared illegal tomorrow and you were arrested and put on trial, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Take a walk with that. Final thing I want to do here. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to have a healing service right now. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to get all Benny Hinn on you. We're not going to pull snakes out here. I'm not going to get weird. But here's what I believe. God wants to heal. He wants to do a healing work. Some of you are here today. We're in prayer this morning as we do every Sunday morning. We get together. Before anything happens here, our leaders are praying right in this room. And this morning we're praying. God's making it clear several things. Number one. Some of you need to be healed of physical things. Some of you need to be healed of emotional things. Some of you need to be healed of some addiction things. And God wants to heal you today. Number two, some of y'all, you need not to just come up for prayer. You need to run up for prayer today. You need to know this is is going down and God wants to move and work. Number three, when we gather together and we pray and we seek the Lord, we hold it in an open hand, okay? Okay? Some of you today, maybe like this woman of 18 years, he wants to set you free today, but it might be miraculous. I had a guy one time, we were praying. He was brain dead on a ventilator in the hospital, EEG flat. And we prayed. And that man was healed completely, totally. You don't go out of the hospital having a flat brain wave. And today lucid, fully functioning, no defects whatsoever. That's God, man. God will do that, right? So we're going to close in prayer today. And listen, we hold it in open hand because in that instance, God chose to heal. Sometimes he doesn't. And we saw God's sovereign. He will do what he does because he's God. But that doesn't keep us from asking today, guys.